well, it's the time when we get to pick out the best movies of the year. And, uh, well, we don't. I guess Bill Levin does, but the rest of us don't get to. And uh, Mac and I went to see Black Panther when we were in Montreal last spring. We were early spring, and we had never been to Montreal. We didn't know it had an underground. And so, Dave, I apologize the ignorance of those from the South. And it was phenomenal to walk through Montreal, but to find ourselves in this movie theater and then to watch Black Panther and to read everything that's been quoted about it and spoken about it. I don't know if you know this, but the editors, the, the, the folks who directed that, wrote a Bible. They call it a Bible, a Bible for the, for the movie, everything that the movie's supposed to be about. Did you know that Bible for the Black Panther is like 500 and some odd pages long? Um, I had heard that some Africans who go and see this movie are kind of overwhelmed with the picture of what a place like Wakanda could be like um, if the last 400 plus years, uh, if for Africans had not been marked by slavery, what people could be like if that sin and that oppression weren't among us. Almost devastating in hope almost devastating. Another movie that did that to a friend of mine, Ben, whom many of you know, was Avatar, the, that movie that depicted this incredibly beautiful place. And for weeks after the movie, uh, Ben wasn't able to even live and enjoy life. He thought, man, it's just not as beautiful as that place, as what could be. And I wonder if you come to this text and you think to yourself, why the picture of this miracle? Why is this miracle here? Why do we see this? It starts in verses 1 through 10 with this miracle that raises your bar of hope. That raises the picture of what could possibly be. And I think our temptation is to stick with the miracle and wish that when you came to church today, what you would experience is a miracle like this. Is the idea that somebody who had been lame from birth, as Luke writes, someone who was some 40 years old, whom everyone had known laying at the gate called Beautiful, in the entrance of the temple, would be healed. And we don't have people who come to our doorsteps and lay there as you walk into worship, but this was much more normal in this time. And we think, wouldn't it be great if we could see this miracle? How do we understand miracles? This extraordinary act, right? This extraordinary, phenomenal act that points directly to the person and the power of God. It says in verse 10 that the people who witnessed this miracle were astonished. They were filled with wonder because they knew Him. And you see, we might go, look, I, I, I just want to dismiss this. this. This miracle doesn't really matter, but this miracle definitely matters. And it definitely mattered to this man, right? This man who was lame from birth some 40-plus years. A miracle here that had to have an explanation in verses 11 and following. 
a miracle where something physical was done so that something spiritual could be believed. It's not the first time that Luke had witnessed something like that, that he wrote of something like this. Luke 5 is another great example. This parable, uh, this story rather, of Jesus speaking in a house and, and suddenly the roof was taken apart and, and a friend was descended by four other friends, this friend who was paralyzed and on a mat and laid down in front of Jesus. And Jesus looked at them and said, your sins are forgiven. And everybody goes, wait a minute. His sins are forgiven. He's paralyzed. And Jesus responds, so that you might know that I have been given power to forgive sins, I say to you, stand up and walk. And suddenly within this one story, we understand the physical and the spiritual that happened next to each other, as is true in this story. Here, we are told in verse 4 of the next chapter that over 5,000 people were transformed after Peter explained what happened with this miracle. This miracle points to something else. And it is that something else that we're to look. The miracle is a sign of another reality. And yet oftentimes we think of miracles and we think, I, I kind of like the miracle. Why don't, why don't you give us the miracle? And I want to give you this picture in your head. Imagine if you were driving east from San Francisco and you're approaching Yosemite. I don't know if you've been there, but if you haven't, you, you owe it to yourself to go. But as you approach and you're 150 miles out of Yosemite, you see a sign that says Yosemite Valley, 150 miles, and there's a playground that has the shapes of the rocks in Yosemite. And you get out and as an entire group of people, you start dancing around the playground and you're like, this is great. And you stay in that spot. And you go, there's no reason to go to Yosemite. There's no reason to go see it. Let's just stay here and witness this. It's that crazy if we get stopped at the miracle that is physical and not here what Peter has to say about this phenomenal event and what it points to. That it takes us to what we ought to desire more than anything else. And maybe that's what you have against miracles, or maybe that's what you have against these movies that create in you a deep, deep longing and desire. But what this miracle does for us is it teaches us what we ought to want to desire. We ought to want that all things would be made right, that there would be complete restoration. We pray it in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come and your will be done. This ought to be the real focus of our desires. But we read things like this and we go, I just don't believe it's true. I can't believe it. But what I want to see and what I want you to see in this is God's kindness in showing us this miracle. We first see this kindness as Peter and John walk into the temple. 
you heard Dana read it. And if we were to ask anyone who was in our midst that had special needs, it would be very obvious to them where the kindest thing that happened in these first few verses happened. It happened here on verse 4. Well, verse 3 says that seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he, the one who was to receive this miracle, asked to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John. They looked at him and they noticed him. And then they said, look at us. And it says here in verse 5, and he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. Here we see Peter and John in their kindness, seeing someone's need. And with all that they had, meeting that need. And then those words that blow your mind are in verse 6. And Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. Are you astonished at the miracle? So was everybody else that witnessed this. They were overwhelmed with wonder and astonishment, it says in verse 10. In fact, not just them, but the guy who was healed was walking and leaping and praising God. Walking and leaping and praising God. But Peter makes it clear from this that the people who witnessed the miracle were not supposed to look in the same way. They were not supposed to look at Peter and John in the way that Peter and John told the lame man to look at them. But they directed our gaze toward Jesus. And that's the second thing that I want you to see in this. The way in which Peter speaks of this miracle so that our eyes are fixed on Christ. Look at verses 11 through 18 with me. Verse 11 starts out with this. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. There was this covered colonnade at the, at the east side of the temple, and, and the disciples had gathered there as they walked in with this man who had been his whole life lame, and they come into that colonnade, and he's clinging to Peter and John. And, and, and you can understand why. He's never walked before, and now his feet and his ankles had been made strong, and he's standing clinging to them, and people are beginning to flock to them. And suddenly this phenomenal event needs to be explained to them. Needs to be explained in the same way that the phenomenal event of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in chapter 2 needed to be explained through Peter's sermon. Here we see the same pattern laid out before us. And you hear what Peter said when he saw all the people in verse 12. And when Peter saw this, all the people gathering around, he addressed the people and he said, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? This is not us. This is not about us. This incredible miracle of restoration 
that causes your hopes to sail isn't about us. And then what he does is he explains that this miracle was done by the power of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom they had completely missed. They completely missed who Jesus was. Peter explains to them how they missed Christ. Read these verses again. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Jesus, when he was questioned about the resurrection by the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection, said, isn't it funny that God would then define himself by the names of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Would God define himself by the dead or by the living? And even in the midst of Peter using the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, Peter causes their minds to begin to wonder, what is he going to say? He says, by the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, this God glorified his servant Jesus, whom, he, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and the righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And by his name, by faith in his name, by his name, and his name, rather, has made this man strong, whom you see now. The faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. This Jesus of Nazareth, described in these few verses as God's servant, as his holy one and his righteous one, and by the author of life himself. The Jews that would have heard these descriptions of Jesus would have run immediately in their minds to the prophet Isaiah and the servant of the Lord written of in those verses. In chapter 43 of Isaiah, the Holy One of God, Israel's Redeemer. You know those verses. When you walk through the fires, you'll not be burned. In the flame, the waves, they will not overcome you. Do not fear. And Isaiah 53, that the suffering servant of Christ is, or the suffering servant of the Lord is called his righteous one. And even explaining to them that it is the author of life that they have chosen to put to death. He goes on to say in verses 17 and 18, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. We read that in context and understand that he said he thus fulfilled in your denying that Christ, in your refusing to have Pilate release him, in your murdering the author of life. And he says that their sin 
pitted them against God and God's plans. And he said, it's your sin that has caused you to miss the magnitude of Christ. To miss the glorified Christ whom God had raised to life. And again, he says, to whom we are witnesses. The crux of Christianity, that Jesus was raised from death to life, that this miracle that affected this one lame man was to point to the restoration of all things because Jesus who had died on the cross for the sins of the world had been raised to new life and glorified and placed at the right hand of the Father and sent His own Spirit, the Spirit of the risen and the reigning Christ, so that all things would be made new. This miracle, a simple sign of a reality that was to cause their hearts to soar. That God raised him up in this cosmic reversal of all of life tending to death. And now death overcome by the resurrection of Jesus. Mita and I watched the Case for Christ, that movie that was made about Lee Strobel, this Christian who had not always been a Christian in the 70s, his wife came to faith, and he was an atheist, and he hated the fact that his wife had come to faith. And so, unbeknownst to her, he set about to figure out how to disprove Christianity so that he could save his wife from the cult that she was entering into. This book, The Case for Christ, is a famous book. You can pick it up and read it. Apparently, it's been made in over 14 million copies in multiple languages now. And in this movie about this book, Lee Strobel, before he began to believe in Christ, he looked at one of his friends who was not a Christian, and he said, he said, help me understand, where do I start with this idea of Christianity? And his friend goes, well, I mean, if you want to go for the jugular, if you don't have time to go to seminary and, and to learn everything about Christianity, if you want to go to the jugular, disprove the resurrection. It's all contingent on the resurrection of Jesus. All of Christianity is. Without the resurrection of Christ, Christianity falls apart. It's nothing. And here, the Apostle Paul says that what you have seen in the healing of this man is proof that Christ has been raised from the dead and ascended to the Father. And that the power of restoration has been unleashed in this world. This is what you are witnessing. And even in kindness, Peter goes, look, I know that you acted in ignorance, but I'm here to tell you that your actions God used to fulfill what he had spoken of in the prophets. And the amazing thing is, he doesn't say that your ignorance has made you not culpable. In fact, in verse 19, he says, you have to repent. You have to turn. You have to see 
what has happened. Because what he shows them is that evil and sin, whether it's the world or the flesh of the devil, is always at work to reduce the magnitude of Christ to something less than the cosmic Messiah that he is. And that this miracle points to. Jesus didn't come to teach human beings how to love one another. And this is the real crux that we have to deal with. Jesus came to do something for human beings that no human being could do for themselves, which is to die for their sins. And because he is the perfect sacrifice, death is destroyed. And the cosmic reversal of restoration has begun of which this miracle is a sign. And it's Peter's kindness to the people to point this out to them. You have missed Christ. You see, it wouldn't be good for me to look at you and say, you have missed Christ too. Because I know the majority of you here have not missed Christ. You have said, this is my hope. This is my only hope. This Christ who died for my sins, the Son of God who became flesh, the author of life who died for me. And my question to you as we enter into this repentance is how often are you dependent in your daily life, on the resurrection of Jesus, in the things that you do, the goals that you have, the, the hope that you have of the future, does it force you to be dependent on the resurrection of Jesus? You see, the Apostle Paul, or Peter rather, here moves into this last section with that force of dependence on Jesus. Verses 19 and 26 show the kindness of repentance. Look at what he says in verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed to you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. This kindness of the call to repentance. Do you see Jesus as risen and reigning? And do you and I identify our need of Him in our focus of this world? Martin Luther is the one who said in the 95 Theses that the life of the Christian should always and continually be a life of repentance and faith. That Christians, we stray from our dependence on Jesus like this. If you're here today and you have yet to believe in Christ, if you said, I don't need him, understand that that fits in this category with those who murdered Christ. And Peter is saying, in light of this miracle, understand that what this miracle is about is that Jesus 
has been glorified at the right hand of the Father, and you need Him. He's been given to you. You need Him. And so repent. And what does that repentance look like? It's beautiful here. It's threefold here. It says, so that your sins might be blotted out. It's the song that we sang. Oh, my sins. Oh, the thought of this glorious reality that my sins, not in part but in whole, have been nailed to the cross and I bear them no more. They're gone. Here, his call is that these people would repent that their sin of putting to death the author of life would be blotted out. The picture is wiped clean, removed completely. The idea is that their ink wasn't like our ink. It didn't soak into the paper. It sat on top of the paper. And, and the idea of being wiped out is that a sponge would come and wipe it all off, that the paper would be clean again. One minister that I listened to this week said it's a whiteboard and he brought a whiteboard up and he took an eraser and he wiped it away. And all of your sins, gone. That's what's on offer. Gone. Wiped out. Blotted out. But not just that. That too in verse 19 and 20, times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Times of refreshing of your soul. How many of you are exhausted in your life? In making it work, in, in figuring it out, in, in just getting through the day. That day that it doesn't seem is necessary to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. I'm just going to school, Bradley. I'm just a teenager. But it is there in that day, teenagers, where the resurrected Christ ministers to you and says to you, I am alive that you might know life and that you might turn to me to sustain you today at school in what you're called to do and to rest upon him. This season of refreshing is a season of refreshing that follows great trial that follows even failure in this context of seeing who Christ was and lack of depending on Him. Yes, I know that Jesus raised from the dead, but my life is so hard right now, I don't have time to think about that. And Peter says, this is what you are to think about. Because this is where refreshing comes to you. To you. Right here. Jesus is real. Jesus will send seasons of refreshing from the presence of the Lord, even the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, the one who reminds you that you can cry out to God as Abba Father, not because you have been faithful this week, this month, this year, but because Jesus has been faithful on your behalf that you can cry out to him. Blotting out sins, seasons of restoration, and even here at the end are seasons of refreshing, and even here at the end, verse 20, and it says this, and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ 
appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. That as you and I repent, our eyes are lifted up and we say, I'm waiting for Jesus to come to make everything right, to restore all things And do you see how that raises the hope of even greater than just seeing a miracle and wondering, I wonder if I'm going to see a miracle. But to see that the miracle points to the greater miracle of God himself dying for your sins, that you might be empowered to live for him and that you cannot live for him without being empowered by him, depending on him day in and day out. And longing for the restoration of all things. You say, Bradley, I can't live in that kind of longing. It's too hard, it's too difficult to live like that. That the wounds that I bear would be healed. But that's why you need Jesus, the risen and the reigning Savior, to lift your gaze and to long for the restoration of all things. Jesus isn't just the man that you killed. Peter says to those who killed him. He goes to Moses and he said, when Moses said that God would send another prophet like me, he was talking about Jesus. When Samuel and all the prophets that followed him said that God is going to rescue his people, By his Messiah, he was talking about Jesus. And ultimately, he said, go all the way to Abraham. And when God told Abraham, through you, Abraham, and through your seed, I'm going to bless the entire world. This is that Jesus. This is him. The Jesus who died for our sins and was raised to life and is glorified at the right hand of the Father. That you and I might long for the restoration of all things. Do you know what is the most common refrain that I hear of the parents of my children's friends? The most common refrain is this. I just want my children to be happy. Is that what you want? Is that what you desire? Because it is God's kindness to meet you at such deeper places where you really have need. And to show you, I have taken care of your need even there. Your sins, all of them, have been nailed to the Christ, to the cross. And you don't bear them anymore. You and I ought to want everything to be made new. We ought to want this. The Apostle Paul says it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And Peter even says that here in the very end. 
He says, God, having raised up this servant Jesus, he sent him to you first. To those Jews first, right? Those Jews that would put him to death. He sent Jesus to them. And listen to why. To bless you. By turning every one of you from your wickedness. Isn't it amazing that God sent Christ because he was kind to us. Because he knew our need and he met it. Jesus. The risen and the reigning Christ. Let's pray.